the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Mick Ryan, retired Australian Army Major General and military strategist, and we'll be chatting about his views on the Ukrainian counter-offensive that's currently underway. G'day, Mick. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. And for this episode, I'm joined once again by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, how are you doing? Very good, Grant. Excellent. Well, let's get straight into the action. And uh, before we do get into the discussion about the counteroffensive, for those few who may not know you, Mick, can you please give us a very quick overview of your career to date and uh, how you've been progressing as a military strategist? I served for 35 years in the Australian Army, uh, commanded uh, at multiple levels up until a uh, combined arms brigade and training and doctrine in the Army. Uh, finished off uh, in command at the Australian Defence College, uh, interspersed with command appointments. There's been a bunch of staff appointments, primarily in strategy appointments, both joint and single service, as well as an appointment working for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon on Afghanistan-Pakistan strategy. So I've been fortunate to have good command and staff appointments, as well as those, you know, the same operational appointments as everyone else to places like East Timor and Iraq and Afghanistan. So Mick, look, looking into uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which uh, look, we'd like to talk through with you today, we saw um, Russia for you know uh, five six months undertake a pretty grueling campaign to take the town of Bakhmut, which they took in uh, I think April May from memory. Since then, uh, there's been some criticism that uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky is making a tactical error in focusing Ukrainian army efforts on encircling Bakhmut. Do you agree with those assessments? Uh, no, I don't, because most of the assessments come from people that have a, don't have a military background, a strategic background, or an understanding of war, uh, and they don't know the facts on the ground. So the vast majority of that, those critiques are, are pretty unfounded and uninformed. The reality is what's going on here is that the president of Ukraine has to balance off a series of political and military imperatives not just, oh, is this the right ground to defend, like the vast majority of critics want to talk about. So he is having to balance off, you know, when before they lost it, does he give up another significant Ukrainian city? Uh, at the same time, in a military perspective, he has to balance what kind of force size is required to defend it uh, versus what's required to prepare for the coming offensives, for example. And the other side is, is the military objective to defend terrain or destroy the enemy. So he had to balance all these things up. I don't see anyone really discussing all these things. I think most of the critique is overly simplistic and, and uh, frankly, indicative of a commentariat who, who knows very little about military affairs in, in the most part. The reason they defended Bakhmut was to kill as many Russians as possible. I mean, that was the long and short of it. Uh, and they did an extraordinarily good job of that. I mean, the ratios, you can argue, were three to one or four to one or seven to one. Three to one's a good ratio in my view. Um, and at the end of the day, what they're doing now is doing exactly the same thing whilst taking back terrain. Although this time they're not killing convicts. They're killing elite Russian units that are irreplaceable. Um, and they're kicking Putin in the teeth. I mean, this isn't just a military campaign, right? There's a, there's a multiple uh, levels of political 
objectives in these kind of campaigns. And every time they can make life difficult for Putin as well as his military commanders, they're the kind of options that are attractive. So Ukraine appears to have created a breach through Russia's first defensive line in the south. Do you consider this to be strategically significant? And if so, how can it best be exploited? Well, it's certainly tactically significant. Uh, What's occurred is the Ukrainians fought through what we'd call the security zone of the Russian defences. They've now fought into their main defensive zone. Uh, And the way you lay these things out is, you know, the first, second and third line the media like to talk about really are a security zone, main defensive and subsequent defensive positions. So they fought into the main defensive position. But what has become apparent is the Russians invested more than half of their force in their security zone. Um, Probably about 60% of the defending troops were defending forward, which means, you know, you're you're taking a real gamble here as a defender. You're taking a gamble that you'll stop them in that security zone. But if you don't, you've got a real problem. So whilst they've broken into the main defensive position, they're doing this largely uh, as dismounted troops. That means you, you only move at a certain speed. And if you're moving at the speed of dismounted troops, your enemy is uh, finds it easier to withdraw and relocate. So in some respects, what we're seeing is a rolling break-in battle rather than the conduct of a real breakthrough. You do, however, in that process, continue attriting the enemy. And at the end of the day, this will come down to who really culminates first in the south. My sense it will probably be the Russians because we're seeing them now having to play a real shell game and the move-in of some of their most elite units. Uh, But it also will come down to uh, how well either side can preserve their indirect fire units. I mean, the Ukrainians are destroying Russian uh, electronic warfare and counter-battery radars at a pretty significant rate. That is a critical part of the overall fire system. So I think that you know, we may see in the coming weeks a pretty significant penetration by the Ukrainians in the south. Have the Russians, Mick, uh, adapted in their defence of that security zone? Obviously now it has been breached, but at the time there was a lot of talk of, you know, Russian elastic defence being much better than it had been, for example, last year when Ukraine retook large swathes of land in the northeast. Um, What's your views on Russia's tactical adaptation that we've seen this year? No, they've certainly adapted. I mean, as both General Zaluzhny and General Sierski have said on various occasions in the last year, the Russians aren't idiots. It's just that their learning culture and their capacity to adapt isn't quite as good as Ukrainians. And in war, there's no absolutes. you just got to be a bit better than your adversary, and the Ukrainians have done that. But nonetheless, the Russians have learned. We've seen recently they've uh, issued additional doctrine to their soldiers about how the Ukrainians have been fighting this offensive. So their doctrine has adapted to how the Ukrainians have acted in the last three months. That shows a level of learning, uh, of adaptation and the ability to disseminate lessons uh, that hasn't been seen widely throughout the theatre from the Russians so far. The problem the Ukrainians have had is that because they're only able to advance slowly. They're giving the Russians time to learn and to continuously withdraw. So hopefully, you know, the Ukrainians might be able to actually break through rather than break in and speed up that process. So 
Your assessment then of uh, the Russian position now, the main line, is that they've already committed 60% of their forces to defending the security zone, which has now been breached. So are we looking at, you know, perhaps 20% in the, in the, the forthcoming Russian lines that the Ukrainians are now attacking? Yeah, and, you know, obviously the Ukrainians didn't kill 60% of the Russians in that security zone. A lot of them will have withdrawn, so they'll still be in there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of hard fighting to go on yet, but I think that, you know, uh, there has been tactical success in the South. But importantly, there's now a changed narrative and perception in the West that uh, the Ukrainians have been successful. For whatever reason, the expectations on the Ukrainians were extraordinarily high back in June. Um, you know, this gets back to the lack of education in war studies and the knowledge of military affairs and military campaigns in the vast majority of the commentariat. I think people have readjusted their expectations now and are seeing this campaign and the other campaigns the Ukrainians are undertaking for what they are, which is slow moving but uh, inexorably uh, moving towards uh, progress and advances in both the East and the South. Now, there have been reports of disagreements between Ukrainian and American generals, with the latter pushing for more manoeuvre-style warfare. What's your opinion on this, and do you think that Russian minefields are preventing armoured mobility? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a bit of this in the Washington Post, pretty unhelpful, to be quite frank. Uh, those who uh, have been talking about, well, the Ukrainians need to fight more like Americans, frankly, uh, aren't worth listening to. They're, they're clueless and don't know what they're talking about. No one can fight like Americans except Americans. Now, uh, I've been pretty open. I think there's been an intellectual failure by NATO over the last six months to not appreciate how the Ukrainians fight and not understand how modern warfare has changed. Um, we trained them to go into this offensive, to go through minefields with tactics that are 70 years old and technologies that are 50 years old, whilst at the same time over the last year we've watched how the character of war has evolved, we've watched how battlefield transparency has improved, we've watched how the Russians have constructed these deep uh, minefields, even deeper than their normal doctrine allows them, but we didn't adjust intellectually. So those who say, well, they should have concentrated on one front, frankly, are, uh, are morons who don't understand war under current conditions. All that would have happened is Ukrainians would have lost a lot of people and they would not have put the Russians in any kind of dilemma that the Ukrainians have got them under. No American general has fought under these conditions ever. The Ukrainians know the battlefield. They've been fighting like this for a year and we need to listen to them. But when countries don't allow their military to go in and learn lessons, like America doesn't, like Australia doesn't, how are we going to be able to learn? Mick, can you get into a little bit more detail contrasting how Ukrainians fight versus how NATO would fight? Yeah, well, we don't know how NATO would fight, um, frankly, because the last time we, we saw how NATO did things was their big exercises during the Cold War, and Afghanistan is not a good model of how to do operations. In fact, it's an extremely poor one. So, you know, NATO doctrine is all about airland integration, about uh, air power being used to degrade the enemy in the deep battle as well as close air support, but it's also about combined arms integration on the ground uh, and about echeloning uh, combined arms forces, you know, and being able to fight at subsequent, you know, ever higher echelons, whether that's uh, combat team, battle group, brigade, division, corps, army level. The Ukrainians 
uh, fight a bit different to that for various reasons. They're, they're clearly still in a transition from a Soviet-era military to a NATO-style military. That will take some time. It's ongoing. It started in '97, but it's ongoing. Um, and that balances, you know, the old centralised command and control versus uh, mission command. So not everyone's mission command, um, so they have that balance to make. They're also balancing off Western versus Soviet-era materiel, whether it's artillery, whether it's munitions, whether it's tanks, whether it's supply and logistics systems. So they're, they're balancing those two things at the same time. And the third thing is every army at any time in existence has a fight for its soul. Uh, newer people have new ideas, older people have old ideas, and that is an ongoing battle in every military, not just in wartime, uh, but you have that in Ukraine. So you have these ongoing kind of battles uh, and these struggles for new ideas and new ways of doing things. We're seeing that in Ukraine. But also, you know, um, Ukraine doesn't have the depth of air power that the United States has. I mean, the way US, the US fights is a feature of its history, it's a feature of its technological focus, but also it has, we shouldn't forget, it has three large air forces. Its smallest air force, which is the US Marine Corps, is way larger than the Royal Australian Air Force. US Navy Air Force is much bigger than that, and then the US Air Force is an order of magnitude bigger than that. They're designed to fight under that umbrella. No other country has that. Maybe China, but no other country has that. So you just can't fight like the Americans do. So training them to fight like Americans without the wherewithal Americans is foolish and it's an intellectual failure. Another point, Mick, that I've seen made is that Ukraine's counteroffensive, you know, seems to be focusing on Russia's strongest defensive positions, obviously with a view of pushing down uh, to the sea. Do you agree that that's actually accurate? Uh, and if so, was there a viable alternative for Ukraine in this counteroffensive? Well, there's a couple. I've seen that narrative from a couple of people, including those who visited, and that could be true. We don't know that for a fact, right? <laughs> there's a lot of things about war you just don't see. When you look at war, you only ever see a part of it. Even when you look at it post-war, you still only see parts of it. That could be true, but the reality is the counteroffensive isn't the offensive in the South. I mean, too many people are looking at this war through the straw of the South, the reality is uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has multiple campaigns. It has a campaign in the South on the ground. It has a campaign in the East around Bakhmut. That's an entirely separate campaign. It has a defensive ground campaign in the Northeast where it's seeking to prevent the Russians taking territory and bringing uh, larger Ukrainian cities under artillery fire um, before Christmas this year. So there's three significant ground campaigns. They have a very significant uh, air defence campaign that they're running, uh, as well as a accelerating strategic strike campaign and a global influence campaign. So when you look at the counteroffensive, you have to look at all these components, not just what is happening in the south. And uh, you know, my overall assessment of it is they're making progress in all of these things. And if you have a look at it from that perspective, they are certainly in a much better position than where they were this time last year. Uh, and I expect that they will further improve their position between now and when the rains start. Now, you've, you've mentioned about uh, Ukraine having some younger people in their, in their army and the, the soul of the army. There seems to be a lot of 
innovation going on, ranging from using Cypax cardboard drones for not just delivery of gear to the front line, but even for attacks, uh, the use of small first-person view drones to deliver munitions, uh, even the signals intelligence to identify where the Russians are based on all their cell phones. Uh, do you think that a lot of the Western military is learning from this? Uh, how are they going about taking that view, seeing what's happening and looking at applying it to how the next battle may be fought? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of innovation going on. Uh, being under an existential threat allows you to do things that are unimaginable in other circumstances. But, you know, the, the Ukrainian culture is very much a bottom-up um, disaggregated, you know, take charge kind of culture, uh, unlike the Russian one, which is very centralised and, and top down. And, you know, the influx of hundreds of thousands of newly mobilised people does bring different ideas. It brings a diversity of intellectual capacity that a clever institution can leverage to have a, you know, systemic uh, learning culture. So we've seen the Ukrainians uh, take in existing commercial technologies, whether they're the array of different drones, and adopt them to be lethal, you know, with RPG rounds or grenades, particularly FPV drones, which have been extraordinarily useful. But it's not just drones, you know. We've seen them take in uh, tablet smart device-based systems and put on digital command and control systems that we in the Australian Army, one, we still don't have one, we've only just made a decision on one, and secondly, it's classified and restricted to a few nodes in units. What the Ukrainians have done is says, no, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to democratise access to digitised command and control, not just seeing it but inputting information. That is transformative. We aren't anywhere close to that in most Western military organisations. And... They've been allowed to do that because what they've also cleverly done is meshed civil and military sensor networks to build a picture of the battlefield that is unprecedented. It's not transparent, but it's certainly far more visible than it has been in the past. And then they've leveraged all that information to prioritise uh, artillery uh, and other strike systems to you know, close the detection to destruction gap to one or two minutes, which is also in warfare absolutely unprecedented. So, you know, you're seeing a lot of innovation in technology and in ideas. Uh, how much of this are we seeing uh, being replicated in the West? There's no doubt everyone is observing this closely. I mean, every military is, I would expect, watching this, particularly the Europeans and the Americans who have just made some significant announcements about mass purchases of drones. Um, but this isn't really a technological problem. This is a doctrinal, it's an intellectual problem. How well can we adapt our training? How well can we adapt our tactics? How well can we adapt our warfighting concepts to what we're seeing here? Uh, that's a more difficult challenge. It's certainly one that I don't have an answer for in Western militaries at the moment. Uh, but in the Australian context, I'd just say that Ukraine didn't get a single mention in the Defence Strategic Review, so perhaps that gives you an indication of where uh, those who call themselves strategists in Canberra uh, are thinking on this. Mick, we see a lot of reports as well, uh, you know, about Russian morale being very low and desertions always make headlines and things like that. <clears throat> you mentioned before they obviously have a very top-down structure as well, which has caused grief, um, as we saw obviously back in June with the mutiny. But is Russian morale... A, civic, a significant vulnerability on the battlefield, as these reports suggest it is? 
Uh, in short, no. You know, there's no doubt that there are a lot of us, uh, Russian soldiers who are unhappy at any given time, but that's the same in any army in these kind of circumstances. There's all kinds of historical precedents for this, including in our own army. Um, so, you know, being happy and having good morale are not the same thing. You can be unhappy but be in a unit with good morale. Um, so once again, this gets back to very simplistic interpretations of military affairs from those who don't understand them. Um, are there lots of unhappy Russians? Absolutely. But there's a few unhappy Ukrainians too. We just don't uh, see them reported. I don't see Russian morale at the moment as a critical vulnerability. Um, it may become that if they are under more pressure. Uh, but it is one thing that you attack of many things in a military system. It's the same as hoping that uh, Putin shuffles off in some respect and that's the way to win the war. Well, it might be, but you can't base a theory of victory on that. Realistically speaking, Mick, what do you think victory looks like for Ukraine? Yeah, well, I haven't written about what I think victory looks like. Uh, you know, it combines winning the war and winning the peace is, is my rough kind of construct here. So you've got to beat the Russians and kick them out, right? It's an essential part of it. So that's kind of winning the war, and there's a whole lot of components to that that the West needs to help with. But it has to be a durable peace. So to be durable, there needs to be certain guarantees for Ukraine, including being in NATO, as well as Russia accepting it's been defeated and no longer aims to take over Ukrainian territory. I think part of being a durable and just peace, there has to be a measure of um, justice, uh, with, against Russian war criminals, and there has to be a whole range of reconstruction activities as well as mine clearance and removal of remnants of war. I think the final piece of winning this victory for Ukraine is the reintegration back into society of displaced people, of whom there are millions at the moment, uh, reintegration of soldiers um, once they're demobilised, and dealing with collaborators. So this is... You know, these are all the things that go into victory. It's not just winning on the battlefield. It has to be durable and it has to be just. So there's a whole lot of other things that we need to consider. And that is a good framework to think about how do you help Ukraine. It's not just about military assistance, right? There's a whole range of other ways that you can provide assistance. And the Australian government, whose aid so far has been relatively parsimonious and unimaginative, might be able to use that construct. On the first point, Mick, of kicking the Russians out, do you think the Ukrainians will be able to do it? Oh, I think so. Um, but we're going to have to change how we think about the war. At the moment, uh, we're giving them enough to tread water. We need to give them enough to swim. And that means uh, a constant flow of munitions and equipment. Uh, there needs to be some industrial development in Europe and the United States to do that. But it needs a constant flow of things like humanitarian assistance, of economic assistance to keep the government solvent. And, and even things like, you know, as many medical trauma kits for combat medics or, or fuel and things like this. I mean, you need all these things to fight a war. It's not just about tanks and missiles. Well, segueing in from um, one of your last comments there was uh, about Australian military aid. The package that was announced in June has been described by some as an obsolete boneyard. Uh, what's your views on that? Should we be doing more and what should we be doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was parsimonious. I don't think it's an obsolete boneyard. And the reason I don't is because the M113s are critical 
uh, in their role as casualty evacuation vehicles. I mean, the Ukrainians are using them everywhere for it and they need more. So they're very, very useful. I mean, they're also used as uh, mobility on the battlefield. So they are not obsolete. The Ukrainians have hundreds of them. They're easy to maintain in the field. They're easy to train people on. And they, have, they still have value in a lot of functions there. Um, trucks and stuff are always valuable on the battlefield. I mean, Ukrainian units are constantly having to buy their own Toyota pickups to do stuff, which is why, you know, Hawkeyes and stuff would be very useful. Um, so they weren't boneyard, but I thought it was cheap. I thought it was mean. I thought it was uh, given with a sense of, well, here you go, we don't really want to give it, but here you are. But I thought it was remarkably unimaginative when we can be providing other forms of aid, you know, whether it's into the reconstruction fund, whether it's uh, funding Australian companies to provide anti-drone defences. I mean, my understanding is it's the Americans who are paying EOS to provide anti-drone defences, not the Australian government. Um, you know, we could be helping with training uh, demining teams. Uh, you know, there, there seems to be a total absence of imagination coming out of the bureaucracy in Canberra. Not, not that that terribly surprises me, but we can do better. Well, Mick, I think that's a great point to uh, wrap up this discussion. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. It's been great to have you uh, discussing the current counteroffensive in Ukraine. Not a problem. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Mick. Appreciate your time. Well, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from the show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yaffa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.